Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. For a traditional dish, I will change an ingredient if I think it's harder for people to access. Um, because if I'm just sharing a recipe that's impossible for someone to make because they have to buy every little ingredient just to make it, then that's not that's not a recipe that I think even I would want to make. I, I wouldn't see it online and think, oh, I'm going to make this tonight. This is Taste. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. Nassim Labichi is a recipe developer based in Brooklyn, where he's built a big following, creating videos that blend craveable recipes drawing from his Moroccan and Puerto Rican heritage with highly relatable dating escapades. His roots in interior design and New York City inform his work in exciting ways. And today we're having him on the show to talk about the future of food content creation. Nassim, this is Taste. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to chat today. I'm super excited to chat also. It's funny because I interviewed you for an Edible Brooklyn story a while back, but I'm the only person that listened to that recording. So it's fun to have a conversation that more people can listen to. Oh, absolutely. I think it's just a little more engaging too to like hear the cadence behind everyone's personality, which is more fun. Definitely. And also I feel like a lot of like your followers and the people that cook your food, they're used to hearing your voiceover. So it's very like familiar in terms of a way to connect with you. For sure. It's funny. I always cringe when I have to do voiceovers because I'm like in my bedroom locked (laughs) doing them for two hours. Yeah. I was going to (laughs) ask you, how do you feel about listening to your own voice after like doing so many videos? I'm still getting used to it. I think (laughs) I kind of um, need to learn to get more comfortable with my voice, but I've always been insecure about it growing up. Um, I think a lot of people feel weird about it just mm -hmm. because it's not something you're used to hearing necessarily. Although today in like the social media Mm -hmm. era, I think it's a lot more common to be like, oh, is that what I actually sound like? For sure. Even my boyfriend, he found a video of me like eight years ago when I, during my YouTube era and my Brooklyn accent was so much more prominent then and I completely lost it when I went to FIT. Oh no, bring back the Brooklyn (laughs) accent. Were you using any like Brooklyn slang in the video that you would remember now? I grew up, um, in South Brooklyn, but I went to school in Coney Island. So a lot of, um, I had like mostly, it was a huge like BIPOC community. So I grew up with the kind of, um, let's like deep New York accent that was different than like Italian New Yorker. It was more, um, I don't even know what you would call it, but. You know it when you hear it. Yeah. You know when you hear it for sure. So to start, I'm curious, what have you eaten today? Let's see. What did I eat today? I made a mushroom gumbo inspired by my trip to New Orleans a couple of weeks ago, which is really fun. When you say that, I immediately think about Princess and the Frog and yes. the mushroom gumbo that they make. Do you know what I'm talking I about? I do. I do. It's inspired by that. And I added beans just for protein because the vegan girlies need it. Um, and then I also had a egg salad sandwich from Court Street Grocers, which is pretty good. Ooh, I love Court Street. Their vegetarian is my favorite. Have uh, you had that one? No, I haven't. This is like the only thing I'll order there now. It's like their Italian like provolone, the like olive mayo that they do. But instead of deli meat, it has like big hunks of roasted squash. And oh, it's that really good. Delicious. I think that 
it was available at the coffee shop I went to. I will say my one qualm with that sandwich that I had today was the bread to egg salad ratio was not right. What's your ideal bread to egg salad ratio? One to one. Whoa. One to one. I Or like put it in a wrap. I yeah. want the least amount of bread and I want mostly egg. And this is like two to one. So it was mostly ciabatta and like maybe two pieces of egg slices. Okay, taking notes. <laughs> taking notes. So the mushroom gumbo that you're developing, when you're developing a recipe, are there any parameters that you always try to keep in mind or maybe like unintentionally find yourself gravitating towards? Mm. Always starting off like with any kind of stew, a really, really strong base. So you have like a mirepoix with um, or like a sofrito of any kind. So it's usually like a trio of vegetables or aromatics to help enhance the flavor and the base of the dish. Uh, When I was in New Orleans, I went to the New Orleans School of Cooking, which taught me the traditional the traditional gumbo, which starts with a super, super dark roux, which I've never made before. And you basically like burn and caramelize the butter with flour. Um, usually they use lard as well. And that just like enhances the flavor and brings so much umami. Um, but I always want to make sure it's also accessible. So figuring out different ingredients people can use because one of the ingredients for gumbo is filet, but not every, like I don't even have filet in my kitchen. I don't even think Whole Foods sells it. Yeah, what is filet? It's, um, do you know sassafras? Yes. So it's basically like powdered sassafras. It kind of has that anise essence or like flavor or aroma. Whoa, that's yeah. so cool. It was, and a lot of the recipes say it's optional because it's so hard to like source, but um, accessibility is something that I'm always passionate about growing up in New York and like growing up in a multicultural background in a neighborhood that was mostly Italian-American. So my parents didn't have like sasson or uh, saffron to find in the local grocery store. Definitely. I think with New York, accessibility is interesting because on one hand, like every grocery store in the entire world is somewhere in the city. But on the other hand, like you can't necessarily schlep all of your groceries back from the grocery store or you don't have counter space for a stand mixer. So I feel like constraints and also options must be something that you're always balancing. For sure. And also just accessibility in terms of cost, in terms of like uh food apartheid and like what people have access to, whether it be just a bodega, whether it be their local mom and pop grocery store versus a Whole Foods. Um, And that's just like based off of my time volunteering at this nonprofit throughout like my teenage years. And they taught me about like environmental justice and the aspect of like how policy informs access to food in especially like inner cities. What was the nonprofit? Uprose. It's the United Puerto Rican Organization of Sunset Park. Nice. Um, and my parents are silkscreen printers, so they did the T-shirts for the company or the organization every year. And my mom kind of wanted me to get out of the house during the summer, so she just kind of like slept me there and left me. <laughs> I feel like having parents that are screen printers in New York must be the best way to know about every like community group or block party or something oh, that's happening in the city. My parents also did like uh, they printed the celebration t-shirts for I don't even know what you'd call it the championship t-shirts for the Super Bowl for any kind of like major sports events so I would always like have my little hustle side business in school and I would get them to my gym teachers before they were even at like models well yeah okay and- <laughs> what's like the most prized screen printed shirt from growing up that you have I'm trying to it's mm, an off-the-cuff question so I think it was when the Giants won the Super Bowl like a decade ago. Yeah. You could sell that one on eBay for sure. Absolutely. It has like the the license logo, um, little sticker to prove oh, to prove that it's actually real. But um it's somewhere in my my mom's house somewhere. So talking about your childhood mm-hmm. and growing up, I'm curious like what kind of food you were eating growing up that you think shapes your approach as a developer mm-hmm. now. Um so 
growing up, my mom is Puerto Rican, my dad is Moroccan, and a lot of the food was inspired by, you know, my mom was first-generation Puerto Rican here in the States, and my dad was an immigrant from Morocco. So I grew up eating a lot of tagines, a lot of couscous, a lot of lamb, but also arroz con andules, arroz con salchichas, sancocho, um, which are all traditional dishes from those two sides of the world. Uh, but also, like, where my parents raised me were was in this neighborhood that was Italian-American, but there was also little pockets of diversity. So on my block specifically, my neighbors were Jamaican, Haitian, Korean, Italian-American, Syrian Jews. So they, I, I grew up eating at their tables as well. And I, the just, like, amalgamation of different flavors I grew up around and forms, like, the flavors I love to develop recipes with um, with now. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And I like that you're talking about home cooking because I think that um, there's obviously similarities in terms of like what's being found in a restaurant or what's being found in someone's home. But I think there is a certain quality of home cooking and maybe even the way that it just like fits into the fabric of somebody's life that I think when you're eating at their table, you're kind of picking up on different cues. For sure. And I always say like the best way to learn about someone or their culture, or their celebrations, they um, grab it or the the way that they celebrate certain things in their life is always at the table. And it's something that's informing a lot of projects that I'm working on in the future as well of how compassion can begin at the table and compassion for other people's differences and also similarities that come with it. You mean through like sharing, literally breaking bread and sharing food together? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Um, And it's something that my mom always made sure that my brother and I were at least willing to try everything at least once. And um, even if we didn't like it, to like swallow and like grow up, and, like <laughs> get it over with. Um, but to also be very intentional about the people that you're eating bread, uh, eating with, breaking bread with, um, and to listen to the things that they're saying and the stories that they're talking about. So you grew up eating all of this amazing food. What made you decide that you wanted to like focus your own life and your own professional work on developing recipes? So I, I kind of fell into it like a lot of my peers did during the pandemic. So I graduated with a BFA in interior design from FIT, and I was focusing in experience design. And my main mission with experience design at that point in time was uh, storytelling through spaces. So being able to take like a brand's essence and incorporate it into an actual space and an, an activation. And when I was laid off because of the pandemic and obviously you no know, activations were happening, I started downloading, um, I downloaded TikTok and I saw a lot of other people sharing their recipes online and my friends were pushing me to do it. And I kind of lost my passion for cooking in school because I was just, I didn't have the time or capacity to do, to do so. Um, but I refound that passion and that love of cooking even more so than I have in the past. So I was beginning to learn how to develop recipes vicariously through, you know, Bon Appetit at that time and, um, you know, watching YouTube videos from years past. And that reignited a love of cooking and storytelling through food that I forgot about. Yeah, I love hearing about that. And I'm curious when it comes to starting out, were you just sharing videos for things you liked to make a lot already? Were you trying to think about like, oh, I know this looks really sexy. It's going to do well on TikTok. Mm -hmm. Um, It kind of started out a little bit of both. So the recipes that I started out with were very silly, like oatmealer. I would make this sticky sweet potato like smoothie bowl and I I would roast sweet potatoes and blend it with bananas. And I think also like I had like an unhealthy eating unhealthy eating habits growing up from middle school to college because of um, just society and, you know, growing up, coming to terms with my queerness and, you know, the 
the unfortunate comings of entering that community and seeing like what's around you. Uh, and actually cooking helped me heal those unhealthy eating patterns. So I was pretty restrictive, but a lot of the recipes were nourishing to begin with. So the oatmeals, the smoothie bowls, and then eventually I started being able to, I was inspired by other years on TikTok and Instagram and being able to see how they were incorporating their own culture into the food that they were sharing. So I wanted to even explore my own culture more so than anything else through the food that I was sharing online. So what did that look like for you in practice? Were you going to your family and and getting recipes that maybe you didn't have previously? Yeah, I think I (laughs) don't have like the best relationship with my dad per se. We don't talk that much, but anytime I would call him, it was how did you make zaluk or how did you make couscous or this tagine? Like, what what do I add? My mom is the person who taught me how to cook from the age of three. Like, she always says, you learn how to, so- like, soft scrambled eggs at the age of three. Like, you were on a little step stool in front of the stove. Oh, so proud. <laughs> so proud. And um, so I more so was able to explore my Moroccan heritage more so because I never, I just ate the food that my dad gave me but and put in front of me, but I never actually saw him cooking it. Uh, and I, he never invited me into the kitchen. I think um, a lot of Moroccan and Arab fathers are very similar in that they take pride in like what they're doing, but they want to do it themselves. And um, this was my way of kind of like taking that back and being able to like add my own twist to things as well. Definitely. And do you find that your parents, I think often with with people, including my own family, when you try to get the recipe for something, it's never that easy. Like they maybe have never measured it concretely. It's like, oh, this much of that. And an eye's worth of something like mm-hmm. that. So how do you actually like get these family recipes and then get them to the point where other people online can be sh- like making them and sharing them? So this is a, during a time where I would go back home more often than I do now. Um, so I, a lot of times I would go home and my dad would make um, like one of my favorite dishes that he made were these Moroccan meatballs and this uh, tomato stew with peas. Mm. And I remember he made it and I was just like very intentionally watching him making it from afar and a lot of times my dad my dad's been in the states for about like almost three decades now so he has lost a large um, part of his culture like he's become very assimilated into American culture he honestly like loves Latin food more than Moroccan food at this point so I'll call him sometimes and be like how did you make this vegetable tagine and he's like what are you talking about like what's that recipe I was like this is your culture what do you mean you don't know what like bruat is Um, and I sometimes that even makes me more inspired to learn the recipe from other people. So I'll call my cousin Selma and ask her because she's very in touch with her Moroccan heritage as well and uh, find ways to figure out the recipe on my own through multiple tries and remembering how it tasted when my dad made it. I think that's really interesting also because I think there's so much to be said for continuing family tradition through recipes, but there's also this side where nostalgia, I think, can be like such a predominant flavor for people where you're chasing this childhood dish and maybe if somebody didn't grow up with it or their family made it differently, like that element of it doesn't necessarily need to hit in the same way as it being cookable and like actually delicious. For sure. And um, there's this kind of quote that floats around online saying like once you make a recipe, it's now yours. And my dad doesn't really like um, a lot of spice or heat with his food, but I do. So I've now made a lot of the recipes inspired by his, you know, touch, but I incorporate my love of um, this like more is more (laughs) concept from my aunt Linda, who's Trinidadian. And she is such an amazing cook, but she adds the most amount of flavor and spices to her dish. It's like, if you're sick, you go to her 
you go to her home to feel better because the amount of chili she adds will kick anything out of your system. Your sinuses will be clear. Absolutely. Well, I would say you're definitely a maximalist, it seems like, in many parts of your life. And in terms of talking about like TikTok and Instagram and these videos, like the recipe itself is only one component, right? There's how it's shot and there's the voiceover that you do over it, which I think you've kind of become known for having this very like fun, approachable, conversational, like it feels like you're in the kitchen with you kind of style. And I'm curious how you landed on that and if you ever have felt like tension with how many like personal details you want to share maybe or just kind of like how much beyond the recipe is a part of the process. At one point, my voiceovers were pretty similar to a lot of what's out there right now, which is just sharing and talking about the recipe and saying for verbatim, like, this is what you do. And it's just reading the directions from um, A to Z. But I started to, you know, it was a pandemic. Everyone's emotional. I'm dating. Um, queer dating in New York City is, dating anywhere is terrible, but dating, queer dating in New York City is a different story as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I tend to, I tend to use the platform as a means for like my own personal therapy as well. It's just like, I'm the kind of person who just needs to get whatever I'm thinking and whatever's bringing me anxiety out. And the second I do it, then I'm kind of, I'm kind of over and I can move past it. So I kind of used my voiceovers as a means to express what I was feeling emotionally and how this meal maybe made me feel better, how it made me, how it comforted me. And it was also like a place of resonance for people who might have been going through something similar, which yeah. was really, really beautiful. Are there any like videos or recipes that you remember as having like a particularly interesting response? Mm, in regards to like the voiceover that I mentioned? I mean, I'm thinking about the voiceover, but if something else comes to mind for you, I'm curious too. Um, well... In regards to the voiceover, I've done so many, I don't even remember them. Uh, They're all like one big diary in your head right big now. One, big one. <laughs> um, probably like after my first heavy breakup for my my like first relationship. Uh, Oof, yeah. And yeah, that was, <laughs> I was very bad. I was very sad. And every recipe was just like, why did I date another Virgo? Like why? <laughs> but um, I think one of the other recipes that I've shared that oh any recipe that I share that's a traditional Moroccan dish especially or uh, even a Puerto Rican dish I get a lot of response sometimes good sometimes bad from people living in the diaspora and um, within the diaspora and then also from that native land and a lot of the response is that's not how you make it you're like bastardizing this recipe right now like you're not being intentional about the cuisine and it gets me really frustrated because a lot of the times like for example my um, grandmother's recipe for harira which is a Moroccan lentil stew or soup she gave me the recipe I, I asked my cousins to translate it and I did it for verbatim I added like my little touch of like adding more spices and a lot of people were saying, like, how could you call yourself Moroccan for making this and sharing it? Like, you're not really representing our culture properly. And it made me frustrated that a lot of people don't realize the nuance that food brings and how, um, going back to this quote of once you make a recipe, it's now yours. You can do every, you can change a recipe to how you personally like it. And um, if you have access to vermicelli and saffron, that's great. But if you have access to sasson, which is something that my dad only had access to, he was like, oh, sasson essentially does the same thing that saffron does in terms of color and has like a sense of like an extra depth of flavor to a dish. I'm going to use that because it's also cheaper. Um, and I always try to 
take in what they're saying and tr- not let it get me that riled up. But um, I'm also a Gemini rising, so I get a little antsy and I want to like fight back. But um, <laughs> I try to approach it from a compassionate lens of trying to show them that there's two things can be true. Yeah, you know, I think it's something that we've definitely talked about on the podcast before. It reminds me of I had Hamel Whaley on recently, and he has a very uh, multicultural background. And we were talking a lot about the ways that like foods have always evolved that I think people don't necessarily know that, um, you know, like sushi was made from fermented fish before it was made from raw fish. Like I used to have you didn't even have rice vinegar in the rice until they moved away from that fermentation. The same thing could be said about like Korean rice cakes that like originally were being made from a different kind of flour. Like the way that people live and agriculture and trade has always impacted things, has made even dishes that we would think of as being like very specific evolve. So I think it's only natural that all these other dishes like have an inherent flexibility in their fabric. But I think that you know, maybe especially with cuisines that aren't as well represented when people see the representation and it's not exactly how they picture it. There's this kind of concern that like it's not being represented in the way that feels right to them, even if our own experiences are all just one version of the same thing. For sure. And I always try to approach it from the lens of a a more introspective lens of why are they projecting right now? Because essentially if someone's, you know, on your in, in your video, in your comment section, blowing up, they're obviously upset about something other than the actual dish that they saw. Um, And a lot of the times I always go back to the fact that like Moroccans, Puerto Ricans, any community of color is always going to hold on so dearly to any essence of their culture and anything that they can hold on to. Like no one can take this away from me. And this is like their identity. And even me as, you know, a third culture American who like grew up being American, but also having parents who so were so close closely tied to their culture and their heritage, I can see how much they held on to their culture just through the food that they made. Um, my dad always f- would have the biggest smile on his face whenever he would make like a couscous or a tagine or we would celebrate any Muslim holiday like Eid or Ramadan. And um, I always try to remember that they're just afraid that they're losing their identity or that their identity is being misconstrued through the obsession of... Um, diversifying one's kitchen, um, which I think is really beautiful in one part, but I also think it can be really easy to lose an essence of a culture when everyone is, it's kind of like telephone when you have one message and then eventually the message at the end of the line is just completely wrong and different. And again, there's like two things can be true. And um, it's just like, what is the intention behind the recipe that you're developing and why you're making it is always the most important part to me. Yeah, I think that's really good to keep in mind. And it's also kind of a symptom of this moment of cooking that we're in where we have the internet and there are so many different recipes for things online. And there are people that are doing like inspired by or a riff, you know, heavy, I'm doing real air quotes Mm -hmm. in the studio right now, but um, that, you know, they didn't learn the recipe from a source that has the correct context and it is going through that telephone. And I think that um, everyone has seen I feel like there was like the New York Times that put peas in guacamole, for example. There have been some very like famous moments of riffing on recipes in an untraditional way that I think like everybody has seen that kind of is maybe in the back of your mind when you encounter something that's unfamiliar. For sure. And sometimes I feel that way when I see someone making a Moroccan dish. I'm like, that's an interesting take. And I I have to sit with it and I'm like, is it inspired by it? Because I've seen people make iterations of like a zaluk or an eggplant dip or um, like a tagine and they'll add something that I've never seen before and I have to just like sit back and like 
question and sometimes I'll DM them like, oh, where did you get this like inspiration from to add this specific ingredient to this dish? Because um, I'm just curious as to why they added it in the first place. Like a lot of times for a traditional dish, I will change an ingredient if I think it's harder for people to access. Um, because if I'm just sharing a recipe that's impossible for someone to make because they have to buy every little ingredient just to make it, then that's not that's not a recipe that I think even I would want to make per se. Like I, I wouldn't see it online and think, oh, I'm going to make this tonight. My favorite recipes are when I see comments come in and they're like, oh my God, I have all the ingredients for this. I'm going to make this right now. And I remember this one time someone asked me, they're like, why do all your recipes use the same ingredients? I'm like, you should be lucky that I'm using the same ingredients because now you have them and you they're not going to waste and you're able to uh, use these ingredients and completely change how they're um, mixed together or how they impact a meal. I love tahini and I a lot of my ingredients, uh, a lot of my recipes incorporate tahini because it's my favorite source of fat. But It's so good. I feel like sardines are something you use a lot also. My um, <laughs> Three of my uncles in Morocco are fishermen strictly for sardines to be tinned. So I feel like genetically I have to be a stand for uh, sardines. Yeah, and your family must have like incredible skin and nails also do, for all the omega-3s. Very long hair. Everyone has very long hair. <laughs> do you know like specifically what brand of sardines and have you tried them before? I do don't know what brand, but there is one brand that I love the most. It's from, I get it from a small Middle Eastern market called Malco Brothers on Atlantic Avenue. Uh, they also have my, the best dates in the city that I've ever had. But um, it's a yellow tin and it's a product of Morocco. And there's a spicy version of the sardines and then a non-spicy version. And they're they're just delicious. Okay, I'll keep an yeah. eye out. <laughs> and I know that you're working on a cookbook proposal right now. And I love just hearing you think about all these food influences in different ways. So I'm very curious to know what you can tell me about the cookbook. So the cookbook proposal has been in the works for like a year and it's... It's a triggering topic. <laughs> just a little. It's Sometimes I get envious. I see my my friends who are in this field as well and they, they've they finished their cookbook already. And I remember us starting like the cookbook proposal at the same time. Um, and I just want to be very intentional about the stories that I'm telling. It's mostly inspired by my experience growing up in New York City and having access to other people's cultures through food um, and also the essence of like chosen family. And I don't want to give like too much away, but chosen family is something, especially as a queer person, that I've come to almost be obsessed with the idea of chosen family. So how people who aren't blood related to you don't literally owe you anything per se uh, can impact your life and be there for you and show up for you even more so than like your, your family that you were born into um, and how food has been such a beautiful way for me to nourish them the way that they get to nourish me or the way that I feel nourished by them emotionally and uh, spiritually. Yeah. So it's like a community cookbook, maybe not in that the recipes are coming from other people, but that it's born out of your community. Mm -hmm. And it's born by like the the families that I grew up around. So I love this idea that right now on social media, chosen family is associated with like queerness and the mm -hmm. LGBTQIA plus community. But um, especially for people of color, chosen family has always been a part of the community. It's um, we were taught to lean on each other because there was no there were so many policies and systemically we weren't protected or we weren't uh, nourished the same way that the other people and communities were. So leaning on your neighbor to pick up your kids after school and they're there until 8 p.m. because you're still at work or um, being able to 
go home to their house for the holidays because your family were, um, maybe they didn't celebrate Christmas and you were interested in like being able to experience um, their their culture and their traditions. So for example, like my childhood best friend, Lauren, she's Jewish. So I would go to her house every single year for Hanukkah. And <laughs> it was always so fun to like break open the brisket and the matzah and like watch yeah. her grandmother make matzo ball soup. And it was just, um, it was one of my favorite memories growing up. I love that. You must be a dreidel shark then. <laughs> A dreidel shark. Like for Hanukkah, are you good for, at dreidel? Maybe? I'm not good at dreidel. Okay. I have terrible hand-eye coordination. I'll have you over to my lock party <laughs> I would and you love. can practice. <laughs> I would love. Um, well, I think that sounds like a really great idea for the cookbook. And I don't think you should feel rushed about finishing it because it's a long process, you it know? Is, for sure. Um, yeah. I, you're in the process of one? No. No. Thank no, God. No. <laughs> I talked to other people about theirs. Um, I'm like, well, that seems like a lot of work to do because it's the recipe testing and the photo shoot. It's such a combined process. And like you're doing all this other work at the same time. Absolutely. But it'll get there, you know? And I also am very intentional about who I'm working with in terms of like selling the book and if they actually understand the mission and the the story behind the book because if you don't feel passionate about the book you're not going to where it's not going to be a mutually beneficial uh, partnership to work together to get this out there because I want someone to believe in it as much as I do and I think there's a lot of the same style of cookbooks which is just as important but I don't think there's that many cookbooks talking about this kind of um, essence. I think there's more of them coming out now with the resurgence of like uh, community and cooking online with social media. But um, I'm excited to see and I'm very interested in seeing how even publishers respond to this kind of like proposal. Yeah, I'm interested as well. And I think one of the reasons why is that we just published a story on taste, I mean, at the time of this recording about um, the history of like queer cookbooks and specifically like more like sapphic cookbooks in the 80s and 90s and um, how difficult it was for so many of them to be made by publishers. And now we're in a moment where there are so many like prolific um, people in the food world that are queer as there were people back in that era as well. Um, and so like seeing the way that queerness is centered or maybe like transformed in different ways in regards to food to me is really interesting. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask you about the Ali Forney Center because I know that's uh, a group that's very close to your heart and that you cook for their dance-a-thon. And I'm so curious like what you cook for people that are dancing for, is it 24 hours? As long as they can? I think this one was... Eight hours. Eight but hours. You were still a lot to... of dancing and eating at the same time. A lot of dancing. So last year was the first dance-a-thon. Um, I was brought on board by Dev Doe, who's a famous drag queen in New York City, and then also Eddie Massib from Eddie's Grocer in Greenpoint. I was there on Sunday. Were you? Wait, yeah. were you at Alley Pony Center? Uh, no, I, uh, Eddie's Grocer. Oh, Eddie's Grocer. <laughs> okay. And um, so th last year was the first year of dance-a-thon and I was like one of like 10 queer chefs who were there just like nourishing the people dancing and it was to this day like my favorite moment in like a long time I felt so connected to my community which um I sometimes feel like disconnected by or like not necessarily involved in per se being like chronically online but um and then also being able to see share my culture so I made the Moroccan meatballs with peas and um, everyone, I think I was like one of the first chefs to sell out. And it was just like really beautiful to see people loving this dish that I grew up eating and also being able to nourish such um, a good cause and help people feel really um, full in so many different ways while they were also doing something for good. 
Yeah. For listeners who are unfamiliar, can you maybe say a little bit about Ali Forney Center? Yeah. So Ali Forney Center is a nonprofit based in New York City, and they support LGBTQ youth who are experiencing homelessness, and they provide housing and meals to those in need. And um, they are one of my favorite organizations because when you meet the people and the founders um, and the individuals working there, they are so passionate about helping these children who are so impressionable. They're so young. And it's so unfortunate that to this day, society uh, breeds this like notion that um, this queerness is unaccepted to the point where you're kicking out your own your own baby, your own um, loved one onto the street because they're just slightly different in who they are attracted to or how they see themselves. Yeah, a huge population of queer youth um, around the world and especially in New York are unhoused. So I think it's a really important cause to raise attention to. And I think that a meatball seems like a really good way to fuel people dancing for that because it's portable and has protein in it. And I'm curious if you know what you're going to make this year. This year. So last year, I actually... um, one of my brand partners that I work with is Ikea, and people sleep on their vegan meatballs. Um, oh, my God. The meatballs at Ikea are such a thing. So delicious. But they actually have a vegan mince, which is really lovely, and I used that too. They donated all of the meat, so I used the vegan meat, uh, and I wanted it to be accessible regardless of someone's diet. This year, I'm thinking of sticking with um, the vegan meat again because Ikea is like willing to donate. Um the food, which also helps like me in terms of like uh, producing it mm-hmm. and sourcing the ingredients. But I'm thinking of doing a bruat, which is kind of like a triangular puff pastry with phyllo dough from Morocco. And there's like a sweet version, which is made with almond paste and dipped in honey. And then the savory version is made with a seasoned meat mixture that has like cinnamon, cumin, cayenne, and uh, coriander. And then you kind of roll it in this phyllo dough, dip it in honey, and I serve it with like a red spicy, zesty harissa date sauce. Mm. And it's sweet and savory and it's crunchy. It's very, it kind of crosses every single aspect of like what an amazing dish is, which is textural. It's well balanced. You have the acidity, you have the fattiness. It sounds so great. And when is the dance-a-thon happening this year? The dance-a-thon is November 12th, I believe. Okay. Are you going to dance or you're just going to be, you're dancing while you serve? I might dance. Yeah, my partner will be there with me, so it'll be fun. Okay, you're you're getting help with the distribution? Absolutely, and the making of the dish. So speaking of your boyfriend, I'm curious about, like, how food has been a dynamic in your relationship, like, especially publicly talking about, like, dating in your videos and also just as a way that I'm sure you connect with your loved ones. Like, what's that experience been like? It's funny. He actually slid into my DMs on Instagram. Is that how you met? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. What was the line? (laughs) I was, um, I posted, like, these... Simple Mills crackers are like my favorite crackers. And he slid into my DM saying, oh, my God, I'm obsessed with those. And it was kind of cringy but cute. Um, and he said something along the lines of, oh, this, uh, I love these crackers. Uh, and then he sent another message saying, like, I love your face or something. It was just Aww. like, yeah, it was like very like roll eye emoji. But Wow, let's get you some cracker <laughs> sponsorship money. They, I texted uh, my friend who works there and she's like, we'll sponsor the wedding in oh like God. two years. Free ca- crackers like being thrown instead Absolutely. of rice. And, like no bar, open bar, just like a crudite bar, just like full of simple milk crackers. <laughs> but um, yeah, he slid into my DMs and I was like, fine, I'll bite. Like I have nothing else to lose. And it's he was going to Korea for a month, so the day that he sent that message. So we met uh, a month later. and But he is Korean, right? He's Korean, yeah. yeah. He's also from New York, so shared a very similar upbringing as me and, like, understanding of culture and interest in, like, learning about other people through food. And 
a lot of our relationship has been surrounded by food. I think every single time we spend with each other, we're either cooking or eating. Um, he's showing me his culture through food, which Korean food is something that I've never really been in touch with because where I grew up, there wasn't that many Korean restaurants around me. Um, but it's something that I'm like really excited to learn more about through him. Um, and he's like learned so much about Moroccan food as well through me. Yeah, I mm. love that. I think there are so many great Korean restaurants in New York and, and Korean food also is just so like flavorful and spicy to your earlier points. Like I think it seems like the kind of thing that you would love getting to eat more of. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, it's just it's such a different flavor profile from Moroccan and Puerto Rican food. It's very um sour and acidic with the fermentation, the kimchi. Uh, love that they incorporate so much seafood into like their daily diet. And um, it's just, it's a, it's an interesting, and I'm so fascinated by the flavor profiles of Korean food. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. We're talking about being born and bred New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, like when you have people visiting the city, mm -hmm. are you into being a tour guide for them? Do you have any like deep cuts you take them to? I think um, one of my favorite things to take people to is just like my favorite restaurants. I don't really, if they want to go to like the Empire State Building, that's on them. I'm not waiting online. But No, you don't no. have to go to Midtown. Absolutely not. Okay, will you tell me like a couple of the restaurants? For sure. Yeah. So um, I live in Brooklyn, so a lot of the restaurants are in Brooklyn. And I think people who visit the city are afraid to step out of the bounds of Manhattan. I'm like, please just go to Flushing. Uh, it'll transport you past New York City to a different world. It's it's flushing is a thing of its own. Um, but I love Winson in Williamsburg, which is a Taiwanese restaurant. Uh, the bakery or the restaurant or, or both? Both. Yeah. Both. Skyline Pancake Bacon Egg and Cheese is phenomenal. Except for I think the bakery blew up on TikTok a couple months ago it because did. whenever I've tried to go, the line has been like down the block in a way that I've never seen. And that is like my one qualm with TikTok as well is like you ruin the experience for a lot of people when something goes viral. And uh, sometimes I worry that it affects a restaurant in that they want to speed up production, but they then lose qu the quality of the actual dish because they're trying to ramp up production of this dish. Um, but yeah, Winson is phenomenal. I'm obsessed with uh, Kiki's is one of my go-tos. It's just like such an easy, good meal. It's Greek food. It's pretty affordable. The vibes are always great. Um, Their like house wine is also incredibly affordable and good, which is just a hot tip for anybody listening. Oh, absolutely. I went there every Wednesday after my thesis class with my best friends in school. We would like cry about our critiques every day. Um, <laughs> just like after a craft, a craft or two of wine. Um, let's see. Uh, I love Al Badawi in on Atlantic Avenue. It's a Palestinian restaurant. It's phenomenal. So good. So delicious. They're like chicken flatbread. Mm -hmm. I'm so obsessed with. And also the water they serve in the clay pot. Yeah. Like the freshest, I don't know, maybe it's just the clay pot, but it was the freshest water I've ever had in my life. So I think delicious. it's like, you know, drinking like a Coke out of a bottle is better than from a can. I think drinking water out of a clay pot is a similar, like just serving textural experience. Absolutely. It's it's so delicious. Um, I think it's interesting to talk to you about TikTok and the way that that impacts food businesses in the city, because like obviously when your favorite restaurant blows up and you can't go there, that's one example. But then on the flip side, like there are so many businesses that have found clientele that way. Um, do you think of yourself as like a food TikToker when you're doing like recipe content as opposed to like, this is me like eating in a restaurant and like doing like a mukbang style video of everything I'm getting? I, most of my content is, is sharing recipes that I've developed or, um, 
recipes that I've learned from other people and my friends and family, but I also have started trying to incorporate like just me trying new restaurants on TikTok just because it's fun and silly. Uh, and you get to show like your little outfit when you go out to eat and like it's just it's just good vibes all around. Yeah, the fit checks are important. The fit checks are always important. It's just, just like it makes me feel good too whenever I post it because it's like, oh, like, like, yeah, it's cute. Um, I remember I went to Bonnie's, which is really good. I went to Bad Roman, which was like fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Intense. <laughs> Intense. Yeah, very. That's a good word. Uh, Bonnie's was phenomenal as well. An amazing Taiwanese restaurant as well in Brooklyn. Oh, I think Bonnie's is um, Cantonese, actually. Is it Cantonese? It's like Canto dim sum style. Correct. The yeah. chef from Winsan left. Yes. And, okay. Yes. Calvin. Can, yes, Calvin. Um, Cantonese. Mm, but yeah, trying out new restaurants is something that I want to do more so of. But making videos of recipes that I've developed takes so much time to edit versus like going to a restaurant and just like sharing little clips of the meal. Yeah, definitely. So it gets pushed to the back. I guess like thinking about food video content in general across platforms, like I'm curious like how you would like to see that grow and change because it's such a rich format that has so many different things happening right now. Wait, repeat the question. Sorry. Just looking at food content, food video content across platforms, I'm curious how you would love to see maybe things you want to see more of or things you think are really exciting because I think that is kind of where food content is evolving faster than any other kind of media. Um. I've been trying to be more intentional about being intentional about the community that I integrate with in order to make this recipe. So uh, I've been going to the farmer's market more and highlighting like these are the farmers that I actually source my ingredients from. One of my favorites, uh, favorite farmers at Union Square on Wednesdays is Halal Pasture Farms, the sweetest family, the most delicious produce, pretty affordable. Um, And bringing back the notion that like food is more than just like the meal that you're making for yourself. It's like every aspect of how you got it to um, how it was farmed, how it was raised and where the dish is coming from, like what it's culturally inspired by and being very intentional about a lot of that. Cause there's, you know, with TikTok and virality and this need for like this obsession with like engagement, it's figuring out how to almost like clickbait a meal or like make a meal click clickbaitable mm-hmm. clickbaitable clickbaitable right um or making someone feel any type of emotion whether it be positive or negative to in order to make this go viral and it's i want sometimes i've been trying to like also remind myself that it's not about how many views it gets it's about um if it impacts at least one single person and it inspires them to get out their um their routine to make something nourishing for themselves Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to think about it. Um, And to close today, I want to play a little like taste check game with you. So I'll give you a category and you can just tell me the first thing that comes into your head rapid fire. Okay, amazing. To start, I would like to know if you could have a signature menu item named after you, what would it be? Oh, my God. Uh, Manifesting. Manifesting. It'd be called the Virgo Stellium. Okay. Yeah. Or do you have a Virgo Stellium? I do, unfortunately. Oh, wow. No wonder you have, like, everything down. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> is, is it a cocktail? Is it an ice cream? Okay. The Virgo Stellium would be definitely a sweet because uh, Virgos are intense, so I need, it needs to balance the energy. Coping mechanism. Coping mechanism, correct. Uh, so it would probably be a cocktail, something, like, sweet with uh, mezcal. Cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. Go-to bodega snack. Ooh, the purple Dorito chips. Go-to bagel order? Mm, everything bagel, tosu, a veggie cream cheese. Mm, favorite cookbook? 
Salfa Acetate by Simi Nasrat. Classic. Classic. Favorite New York City restaurant? Right now, it would have to be Winsan. That's like always a go-to. Favorite New York City bakery? From Lucy. Mm. Yeah. Favorite New York City bar? I don't go out to bars that much. Uh, I guess it would have to be, I love singers, but it's more of a dive bar. Yeah, it's like a, a dive queer bar dive queer kind bar. of vibe. Most of the time, if I'm getting a cocktail, it's at a restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay, a restaurant anywhere in the world that you wish could be your neighborhood restaurant? Mm, there is a restaurant in Seattle called Medikesh, and it is the the best Moroccan restaurant outside of Morocco that I've ever been to in my entire life. Well, okay, next trip to Seattle, I have to go. Phenomenal. And there's no Moroccan restaurants in New York City that perfectly execute Moroccan cuisine without influence from any neighboring cultures or cuisines, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's it's just like strictly Moroccan food, which is sometimes all that I want. Wow, okay. Yeah. Um, a now-closed New York City establishment that you wish you could resurrect? Mimi's Diner. Yeah. Yeah, I miss Mimi's. Great, although I have to say that uh, my friend Tanya that I do cake scene with is a pastry chef at Little Egg in the Mimi's space, and I do think she's continuing some of the pastry vibe a little bit. I does have she, to advocate. Does she make the carrot cake? She is going to do it as a special. It's okay. not always on, but I we can lobby her, I think. I think so. I'll, I'll DM happen. her. Like, we need the carrot cake back. To close, a fictional food scene that you wish you could eat. Remy, when he eats the grape with, um, was it the grape with the, with the cheese or strawberry with the cheese? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that scene. Um, maybe I'll just like pop an edible and try recreating it myself. You know what? I picture you coming up with flavor combinations. That is what I picture is like the closing your eyes and like seeing the shapes and colors. I so. actually have said that I see flavors like colors. So when I pair flavors, it's like pairing, like it's a like color theory. Well, do you have synesthesia? Maybe it's a form of it, but I just sometimes I'll think of flavors and I just know it's going to work because I can see them. Okay, so what color is like coffee? Well, co- coffee's hard because it's like brown. It's yeah, brown. yeah. <laughs> um, but like, co- mm, like cardamom to me is obviously like brown, but it it evokes this kind of like, um, kind of like deep emerald green kind of flavor to me. Mm. Okay, well, let's go uh, bring some crayons to the kitchen next (laughs) time. (laughs) This was so fun this evening. Thanks for coming by. Thank you so much. Kyle Newman, welcome to This Is Taste. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome. Thank you. Well, you know what? Your book is awesome. Because honestly, I don't play Dungeons & Dragons, but I, I am drawn into the universe. You built me a universe. I love it so much. That was one of the most challenging parts of it and one of the most rewarding parts of it. I think trying to live inside of a universe in a game that strives for uh, multifaceted authenticity and immersion, trying to bring another sensory experience to that game uh, to activate smells and taste when uh, it really hasn't been done before was uh, a challenge. And I think as one we we relished. So it was, mm-hmm. it was a, Really unique and strange experience, you know, the whole idea of a of a fantasy cookbook. Absolutely. And it pushes your creativity to the limit. I mean, you're you're a well-regarded director, producer, filmmaker. So I mean, Dungeons and Dragons isn't really, you know, most of what you do. You you do other things. So I could imagine the task, and we'll get into your history of DD, but the task of creating a cookbook around this universe, which is like straight imagination. That's like so atypical to the kind of cookbooks we talk about. Was this really difficult? It was in conception. 
it's more daunting to think about it. But once you roll up your sleeves and dive in, you realize it's just as familiar. You still have you know, the same amount of palatable things at your disposal to present to people to use in their recipes. And you just have to find new ways of combining them or finding the familiar and augmenting it with something left of center or you know, not really common for that type of dish. And that, that was our task. Yeah. But yeah, when, you, when, you, when we sat down to do it, we're like, wow, where do we begin? Because we're looking mm-hmm. at nearly 50 years, 50 years of media that have been written about this game there's novelizations there's in-game setting books there's like culture guides there are games themselves and you kind of pick up little clues while reading it like doing in-universe historical research and you realize okay so these these underdark elf people have this at their disposal they don't have livestock but they have mushrooms and lichen and maybe freshwater fish that like would grow in caves underground and so you realize that becomes their the, the things you can select from and then how do you make that palatable for um humans yeah. humans of earth you know so it was an extra layer of work you can't just go i really love a dish that includes this and this because we have to then tether it to something authentic that's mm-hmm. in the game whether it's a location or, or peoples or a concept and trying to keep in mind the methods of preparation that they have at their disposal uh for the most part dnd is very rustic you know but there are some settings that allow for more fusion type ideas so yeah and you really embrace those fusion settings we'll get into some of the recipes but first i want to know your own personal history with dnd because you're not just writing cookbooks and books about dnd you're creating a documentary you're in the process of, of working on that and you're really into the culture on dnd obviously um but how about you like your personal connection to the game so I got into the game um, almost peripherally. I my older brothers played. Um, I was born in '76, and you know they kind of got hit with D and D right when it came out. You know, they were children of all that stuff, and I would sit in the tent at Boy Scout camp and watch them play or see them and their friends playing. I was kind of like Elliot and ET off to the side while the older siblings played. Uh, so I flipped through the monster manual and comic books. That's how I learned how to draw. And I heard the game and I, and I was wanting to play it, but I was just too little to do it because it's really a game you enter at around 10, 11 because math and reading are such a big part of it and writing. Um, and so I had this, you know, this tangential kind of experience with it um, where it was like around, but I wasn't in it. And then I got into it more via the Star Wars role-playing game and mm-hmm. Ninja Turtles role-playing game. So I started to play other role-playing games and D&D was one of them. And then uh, developed this great affinity for it over the years because it really is a way to just build universes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they give you the tools to go out there and create your own world. Whether you want to play in one of their worlds and make it your own or just your world from scratch. And that was always fun. It was a great way to spend time with friends and just develop your imagination. And now if you look at it, most showrunners are really just they're dungeon masters. You know, they have a group of characters and they create a world and you just watch it go on and on. And d and is like these ongoing seasons of a show. Um, so that's how I, I got into it. I think it just helped foster my love of storytelling and, you know, imagination. Yeah, absolutely. And and clearly it connects to your professional career. I mean, I've, I, I listen to Craig Mazin's podcast once in a while. I know him and John August have a big D&D night every week for years and years. And it seems... A lot of folks in Hollywood, particularly folks who are producing and, and writing and directing, are into it. Are, are, do you have other do you have groups that you play with 
in Hollywood. Craig, yeah, Craig's the best. Craig plays in one of my groups. Um, oh, sick. You're, you're, so, you're an amazing group. Yeah, All right, here you go. I brought Craig into a group. Uh, we played also with Joe Banjanello and some other people. We went through one of Dungeons & Dragons' famed settings in Forgotten Realms and it was Undermountain. It's 23-level dungeon dive, and Craig played in that. And Craig joined our Tuesday night game as well. Um, so I do a lot of stuff or D&D related with Craig and his oh podcast God. is spectacular. <laughs> um, so yeah. And then there's another game we did, which was, we got kind of famous and it was with Joe as a dungeon master and, and Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine and the big show from the WWE. Oh. And we had Vince Vaughn and the Game of Thrones creators. There was all these great people in this group and we were doing that strong prior to the pandemic and then twice as strong during the pandemic. Sometimes we're playing two or three times a week. Uh, Amazing. It got, it got a little crazy. So there was that game. And uh, I don't play as much the past year, I would say. I have, I have a three-year-old, three-month-old, and mm-hmm. a two-year-old, and, a, yeah. and an eight-year-old, and a 10-year-old. So time yeah. just keeps getting um, cut into. But I'm I'm getting back into it. Our Tuesday night game keeps going. So I love this. It's, it sounds like it's a great escape and a great networking opportunity. So, hey, get to do both at the same time. It really, you know what? Everyone you kind of forget who, who yeah. everyone is you just come together like 13 years old and you i love that you unrestrained laugh and it's wild and no one's keeping anyone's imagination in check and it's it's like oh. a step away from the world very cool so when you're making this documentary have you learned anything about D culture briefly that we can talk about right now i know it's not out it'll be out at some point you're trying, are you talking about the culture of yeah the in the game or the culture of the people the people yeah not not so just you know the the players the people yeah oh it's well of course i mean i don't people give you this advice when you when you enter the entertainment industry or the writing industry and they was like write what you know and i think that's the worst advice in the world uh i always say write what you want to know and i was not an expert at dungeons and dragons of its history when I got involved with like Art and Arcana, which was our first book in, in 2018. And that mm-hmm. was a, a, basically a history of the role-playing game that I had stepped away from for about 15, 18 years. And I was like, where's the book about what I've missed? Where's someone done this? And they hadn't. So I set out to do this and I built this team and we we made this book and got nominated for a Hugo, which was amazing. And and we started to really deep, deep dive into the culture. These people, why is this game enduring? Why is a game that's traditionally analog why is a game that's you know pencil and paper that's in in a way when you have all these when you have a phone in your pocket why are people gravitating towards this game why has it gone from three million players in 2008 to 60 million players in 2023 what is this explosion and I think it taps into a few things and there's a few reasons why it's risen again it's like first of all the the culture of nerd is it isn't as taboo as it was you know fantasy isn't taboo everyone it's mainstream you have game of thrones you have harry potter you have lord of the rings they're you have seth cohen yeah you have all these these people that are like role models in your culture and you're watching it and it's mainstream so you're like wait this isn't weird this isn't taboo this is just like everything else i do so you're familiar with it you have the vernacular and then the game itself has been demystified uh you don't have to be you know it's not like what is this weird arcane game you Mm -hmm. play is it a cult a cult like no it's it's just people getting together it's collaborative storytelling and so all these things are stripped away and they made the game even simpler to play. So now the entry point is even younger. Now you're getting all types of people. Um, 
all ages, all backgrounds. And it's a really fascinating melting pot of just people coming together to, to escape and have a good time. You get to practice being someone else is what, is what some people love. Love it. And sometimes you're exercising a part of yourself. You never get to exercise. You play it through a character. And you're seeing this game infiltrate um, prisons. You're seeing it infiltrate therapy now. People are finding there's new ways to unlock sides of people or get them to talk about themselves. So it's got these incredible properties. And I think it really became, it has become uh, the role-playing game, this type of a new art form, new American art form uh, since oh, yeah. the 70s. And these are things we've discovered you know, making the doc and writing these books. Um, but there's, it, it's endured because of the people, because this could have easily died, you know, many Absolutely. times. Absolutely. It has died. I mean, 8 million on, in 08. I mean, that's like almost compared to 60 million now. It's it's an incredible growth and it almost did die probably then. Let me ask you just quickly, when you say it got easier, that really is interesting. What, what does that mean exactly? They, the rule system itself is just a little simpler. There's not as much math. There's less complication. If you're getting into combat and having to figure out things, game it doesn't last as long. You might say, all right, this is a winnable battle. There's a way for a dungeon master to ease through it. So the story becomes more central than some of the technical things. Also, there's D&D Beyond, which is like a digital app mm-hmm. that you can just, it, it basically walks you through building your character in, in three or four minutes. You don't need someone to sit and explain it to you like you used to or you don't have to read a 50 page Mm -hmm. section of a manual now you can sit down and just do it it's intuitive and you've built your character before you know it there's dice rolling right in the app so it's exponentially simpler and the rules itself itself are easier to learn so it's really cool that you say that barrier for entry has just just dropped so let's talk about the book and about, you know, our, it's been out for a little while. You know, are people cooking from the book? And, and, you know, what are you seeing on social media? Are there any recipes that you're seeing out there in the universe anecdotally or just on social? Oh, you know what popped up after the first book? Here's Feast 1 came out in 2020. Yeah. And a Facebook group developed the Here's Feast Facebook group. And these people get together and they take pictures of their versions of our recipes, which is great because so much of D&D is homebrew. It's putting yourself into it. It's customization, which we yeah. encourage in the book. And so people will be like, I did it this way, but I substituted this for this. And this is how it came out. And they'll share their stories about making it. And I would go to the group and interact with the people and also try to get a sense of what they did or didn't like about the first book, knowing that we were developing a sequel and figuring out how to incorporate some of that. Where did we maybe have a gap to fill? Where could we have made things easier for people or more inviting for people? Yeah. So that was a great um, natural thing that occurred, watching people galvanize together to celebrate the book and also to expand upon it. And so there's been a lot of that. A lot of people on Twitter share stuff or X, whatever we're calling it these days. And um, it's been rewarding to see people take to it that much. And then, of course, we launched the Heroes Feast show this fall. Uh, I think we're four episodes in as of recording. Tonight's the, our, our new episode. And Amazing. Uh, watching people react to it in that format is really interesting because it's kind of developed new, a new set of eyes and a new audience beyond the people that maybe discovered the book. or you know, How are we seeing the show? Is it uh, streaming on the streamer? It's um so D and D has a D and D Adventures channel, which is just D and D exclusive com- content, cool. and that's on Amazon Freebie and Plex. It's really easy to find on Plex, and um, they're just constantly streaming D and D content. 
and the old animated show, which I love, the old D and D Saturday morning cartoon, which is wonderful. So there's a lot of cool content on there. But every Monday night is a new episode of Heroes Feast, based on our book. It's really neat. Were you on set for the photo shoot at all? Yes. So I would attend. Um, we kind of. I was I for the first book I was there almost the entire time and did our location stuff. The second book, uh, we kind of divvied up the tasks a little bit. We did this wonderful shoot up at a castle, which I had located at the tail end of the first book. I was like, if we're going to do a second one. We got to level up. It can't just be <laughs> back to a tavern. Right. This castle. I found it. And I kept pressuring everybody for two years to shoot at this castle. They proved the shoot at the castle. And it lined up exactly with when I had to go to Europe last winter to shoot um, some stuff for the D&D documentary. So I couldn't even make the trip to the castle. I had locations gathered, which was unfortunate. But the, the photography is exquisite. Yeah, And it's really inviting. It, what we wanted to do with this book was pull you into the world. It's not to take you out of it and remind you of the familiar things or make name plays or like Wookiee cookie type stuff. We wanted to make you feel like you stepped into this world. And if yeah. you're having a game night, you could invigorate your tabletop. Because look, there's so much shared between tabletop, cooking, dining, and Dungeons & Dragons. You gather around a table. It's four or five, six people. Conversation and food are at the center of it. Yeah. We're not combine those two. So, um, yeah, I got to be a part of it. And that was, that's great. Because what you want to do is imbue those photos with little details and Easter eggs and make sure that every part of the lighting, what is the lighting in this location? You know, it, and that's a big part of it. If you're in the underdark, you can't have a nope. certain type of light available. So, you have to be aware of all these things when you're in these different settings. And book two, Flavors of the Multiverse, takes us through seven different planets, essentially, seven different D&D uh, playable settings. Um, so there's 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 a, a wider breadth of visuals at play. It's, it's, a, it's a stunning book. And, you know, I think it really changed the way I thought about doing like a crossover, so to speak, book where, you know, it doesn't feel you know, corny or overly branded. It feels like you're built a universe. So I agree with you fully. Love the book. It's you guys should feel very proud of it. It's terrific. I'll be honest with you about something. So about, I don't know, six, seven years ago, I was in a Barnes and Noble around a holiday time. And I saw a themed cookbook. Yeah. And I picked it up and I was like, I think I even took a picture of it. Maybe like put it on social. I was like, what the heck is this? Mm-hmm. You know, I just couldn't wrap my, I was like, this is, this is this is jumping the shark. This and is very bad. I, I would years, imagine. Yeah. And then a few years later, I hear I am, writing one and so passionate about it and fully believing in it. And I, I me, myself, I had to come, I love the India, I love all aspects of it. But I think when the idea of it first came up, we were, we were all like, is this too much? Are we hmm. and And it clearly, it wasn't because once we started going, we could not stop. We have a database of like another 200 recipes that have come from our research. And you just feel like there's so much more to mine and explore. And so much of it is curating and balancing, saying, well, we can only have this many breads. We have to save these. We can only have this many desserts. So it's a very vibrant culinary world that we just can keep mining. It's it's yeah. wonderful. I'm sure you'll be back on the show talking about other books. I, I love it so much. I want to segue. You, you direct uh, music videos. You've worked with Taylor Swift on several. What's food like on set with Taylor Swift? <laughs> uh Taylor Swift's awesome. Um yeah, she's, definitely. She's great. No, I, I got to know her really well. She's actually godmother to um my second born, 
Wow. And live with her for a little bit. She just loves life, lives life, follows her culinary uh, passions and instincts. She likes to cook. Um, it's food on set. Um, you know, it's it's more or less traditional set food, but, you know, you... I wouldn't say it's anything out of the ordinary, but you know, yeah, she's somebody that's just like, if she wants something, you know, it's just like, go for it. Um, that, that was my experience. with it. All right. Fair enough. I mean, I, I, I think it sounds like she's probably just a down to, down to business. You don't have that much time, but when you're living with Taylor Swift, it's cool. Like, and, and you're close. Are you guys like cooking together at all? What's the vibe? Like at the time, this is years ago, but we had, yeah. And it was, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she, she, she cooks, she, she's a, a domesticated person, you know, I think mean, she bakes. She loves that stuff. You've been a good sport. I, I, I rarely uh, get to talk to Taylor Swift, like, you know, for, you know, one level away. So that's, that's just for our Taylor Swift fans. Appreciate you being a good sport there. Um, you know, let me, let me ask you though, um, about future projects, um, you know, with, and you're, you're a showrunner and producer. So I just, I'm going right to the source here. You know, with the success of the show, The Bear, and I'm not sure if you've actually watched that show, but it seems there's real tailwinds for like food related drama and scripted television. Are you interested in doing that work at all now that you've written two cookbooks? You're clearly in the game. Absolutely. I, you know, I, when I approach any um, media or potential projects, I don't put any stigma on it or judgment if there's a way for me to bring out an aspect of myself and make it better than what i'm what someone's handing me and not just say i could do this i, I almost want to make something better than uh than before i got involved so i can improve it or add a dimension to it i'm in it doesn't matter if it's an unscripted show it doesn't matter if it's a movie it doesn't matter if it's kids entertainment um i'm open to anything i think you know with with, with the books and stuff i you know, people are like, well, why are you making books if you're a filmmaker? But I love this stuff and it's a part of me. So it was part of my youth and it formed me. So why not revisit it? What's the, there's no, yeah. there's no fault in it. And, and if you can make a high quality product, then that's all that matters. And, and with Penguin behind us and 10 speed, we felt like they weren't trying to jam something through. Like D&D's big, go jam a book out quick. No, you know, it felt like we want, the preeminent cookbook, themed cookbook, IP-based cookbook. We want it to look beautiful. We're not going to pull back in any way. You guys are the experts on this subject matter. What would make the most authentic, immersive, beautiful experience? And we were liberated and encouraged in that way. And that's why we've gotten to do more. And we have another product coming next year. And hopefully more of the cooking show. And, you know, two books. So it's become its own little... Yep thing and that's because i think they've unleashed us and empowered us to embrace it and not look at it just so much like a product but more like let's make something special for the people who love this game i love to hear that it's definitely the way of 10 speed to work with um you know creators in a very authentic way so i appreciate that you say that um do you watch the bear at all have you have you checked it out i have seen like right when it came out i saw the first two episodes and then i hadn't been able to get back to it. i know there's subsequent seasons i liked what i saw great energy to it i love the way they photograph the show yeah definitely. i love the cast on the show but it's a little raw in my just in my memory because it was a few years back or was it two years ago the first season came out yeah 
I think I watched the first two back to back and then I was going to, I had every intention to keep going because I liked it. It's just one of those things where you, I'm so behind on so many. You're watching a lot shows. of stuff. You're making stuff. So you can't really keep up with everything. Okay. There's, but it's one of those ones that's like sticks with you. I, I definitely want to go back and watch it. Um, there's few things that, you know, there's so much out there. There's a few things that keep me interested. And maybe it's because I have this passion for food and yeah, it is absolutely. really well made. Um, so yeah, I don't know where they're at now in season two or anything. Yeah. Well, they just got a bunch of Golden Globe nominations, so they're doing okay in that category. Okay. On This Is Taste, we asked guests about their discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid-fire Fast and Furious taste check. Are you ready? Okay. The best breakfast food? Bacon. I love the answer. I love it so much. Well done. A little bit under. How do you do in it? I like it a little bit under. I like those fatty edges. Right on. I'm with you. We align. Good choice. <laughs> I think crispy bacon is is not good. You've like you've kind of destroyed the the beauty of bacon. There's that there's that there's that line and it gets crossed so quickly. You've got about 10 seconds. To... <laughs> <laughs> so out. true. I love that. The best dessert. Cinnamon buns. I don't know. I'm going blank on dessert. Why am I going blank? It's, it's not all right. Ice cream. It's not ice cream. No. I like ice cream and I have a sweet tooth, but there's something ordinary about stuff like that. I, I like a good pie. Yeah, I guess a good warm pie. Maybe. Fair enough. Good call. Your favorite American fast food chain? I do love McDonald's French fries. True goat. Absolutely. Chick-fil-A has got a good chicken sandwich. Absolutely. I love a Chick-fil-A sandwich. That's about it with them. Your favorite and I, LA, and the Jersey Mike's Jersey Mike sandwiches is I do like that from going fast food from the, the New Jersey connection. Respect uh, the, it. The, the original one is 10 minutes from where I would go to the Jersey Shore. Oh, I love it. Your favorite LA restaurant right now? I like a little tiny sushi spot that's near my neighborhood called Studio Sushi. It's not mm -hmm. fancy. It's simple. The sushi is consistently great. And I don't know what more I need. You know, I'm kind of simple when it comes to restaurants. I'm not always chasing the fanciest or the most complicated or the most fusion. I... I want to know that what I get is is done well, done with care. It feels like it's mm -hmm. run by family. I like that. I, I don't. I'm I'm not uh, snooty when it comes to all that. Respect. When I go to Studio City, I go to Daikon. Daikon, the little yeah. izakaya, really cute yep. inside. I love that place. That's okay. So I ate there recently, and that's wonderful. Yeah, it's cute. Um, a few more. Do you have a favorite cookbook? I don't know what it is, but I had one in my in my parents' house growing up, and it was just like one of those classic ones. And then it was probably a '50s cookbook, yeah, reprinted in the '60s. They had them, you know, still in our kitchen in the '80s. It was one of those ones that was so thick, almost in, like an encyclopedia, but it had everything. And I kind of like that. I know niche is the thing, and I know people want mm -hmm. it all to be themed and yeah, and focused. But I like that having one tool right by the counter you can open up and kind of get a little bit of everything. Yeah. Those days are gone. I feel like, uh, I don't even know what the name of it was. Is it Betty Crocker? It it's not like you're describing Betty Crocker a little bit. It maybe it was Betty Crocker. It just didn't, it wasn't jammed with a lot of pictures. It was just, <clears throat> you know, very utilitarian and I love it. straight forward. Last question. Your favorite sandwich. Yes. Right now I'd go for a Philly cheesesteak. Respect. Good call. Do you put whiz or do you put regular slices? It depends on the place. I would trust the I would trust the 
the vendor. Um, if I'm making it myself, I'd probably go slices. Um, but I love it when a when a vendor does it. There's a spot I loved up in New Haven, Connecticut called Louis Lunch, and you know it was like yeah. the, the the early burger and the, the the way they would approach cheese. It's like I trust them. I'm going to do their thing. So a good spot. Whatever establishment I'm stepping into, um, if it's recommended, I'm just going to go with it. I love it. Kyle Newman, thank you so much for joining This Is Taste. Thank you so much. This is great. This Is Taste is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening.